0: This is Families, Farms, and Coronavirus. Utahns have come together to help neighbors and friends during the pandemic, but it hasn't always been easy. With more, here's Kelly Pierce and John Wojciech on KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM at 1160 AM.
1: Earlier this year, tens of thousands of Americans, many newly unemployed, waited for hours in long lines at food banks across the country. Maybe you or someone you know were one of them.
2: And I know this is help,
3: but it's frustrating when you go to the shop and you can buy nothing because the people was crazy.
1: Yet, as the coronavirus hit the USA, farmers across the country dumped millions of pounds of food.
4: Five million pounds of green beans that we have destroyed. 8 million pounds of cabbage that we've destroyed.
1: Millions of onions dumped in a trench to spoil. Last week, about 5% of the U.S. milk supply was dumped.
2: And Utahns felt the effects. Never once did I think that in, the, in my lifetime, we would experience anything like happen in the Great Depression. You know, I never thought we would have families that really had no food to eat. And in March, you know, that third or fourth week of March, when I walked into the grocery store, our local Kent's Market here, and there was nothing to buy. It was shocking to me. I cannot believe that that actually happened in 2020.
1: This is Ron Gibson, the owner of Gibson's Green Acres and Bennett Farm's Legacy in Ogden. I met him recently while he was harvesting corn. As shocked as he was at all the empty store shelves, He wasn't completely surprised either.
2: About 50% of our food supply today is designed and we've built a market to go through food service. So that's restaurants, cruise ships, hotels, ball games, all those kind of things. And so 50% of our market was there and all of a sudden 50% of that market stopped.
1: The problem is America only has so many food processors and food processing companies and they're almost all set up to cut up huge slabs of beef and butter.
2: We had... 50 pound boxes of bacon that were sitting in warehouses that had the warehouses full but the market you can't sell bacon like that to a housewife and so we couldn't sell that at the grocery store so we had warehouses full full of food and so the processing capability they couldn't just go make more food and package more bacon because they had machines and processing capabilities to process it in 40 pound boxes and that same thing was that way with cheese and it was that way with with butter
1: and it wasn't just limited to utah's farmers what happened in other states also left the shelves empty at your supermarket
2: california arizona you know some of our big produce producing states that you know we're getting lettuce from in the winter they dumped gazillions of truckloads of Uh, They just didn't pick the lettuce and the carrots and all that kind of stuff. So that was pretty ugly for them.
1: Although this did not affect Ron, there was a federal regulation that made it illegal for a piece of food packaged for a restaurant to be repackaged for a supermarket or sold to you. Until it was relaxed in April, for at least a month, that food had to be dumped, while plenty of people around the country went hungry. But what happened with coronavirus also changed what we eat, somewhat. Remember this summer when the price of hamburger was the same as
2: lobster? So one of the biggest challenges we had in the cattle industry is, well, across our industry is that when people stay home, they eat different food than they do in their way when they're at a restaurant. For example, in the cattle market, we lost most of our sales for prime rib and ribeyes and filet mignon, all those kind of things. And what people didn't buy was hamburger. And so our hamburger sales were through the roof. And... That's why midsummer you saw the price of hamburger go so crazy. But yet, there was a lot of sales, at least at my local grocery store, there was a lot of sales on steaks and roasts and those kind of good cuts because they weren't moving those things. And that happens all the way across the board. You know, like if we're going to shut down the restaurant industry, what's that going to do to the French fries? you're probably not gonna eat french fries at home near as much as you are when you go to a restaurant, right? And same thing with onions and same thing with all the different things. Even even in the dairy world, we drink more fluid milk when we're at home and we probably eat less cheeses and that kind of thing. You know, if you're not eating a bunch of pizza, you're not getting as much cheese, right? And so this just totally... Disrupted the entire food supply chain.
1: However, farmers like others wanted to help struggling and hungry people. After Ron was a guest on a radio show recently, an insurance salesman called him up.
2: And he said, well, my name's David Brown, and um, my wife and I heard your interview on the radio this afternoon, and ever since, we've been sitting here at our house talking about what we could do to help farmers and ranchers in the state. He said... Ag producers are so important to the future of this state, and we just wanted to know what we could do to help. And so he said, I wonder if we could do like a GoFundMe page and maybe Farm Bureau could distribute the funds to farmers and ranchers. And I thought, well, farmers and ranchers are not the kind of people that are going to want to take a donation.
1: But then Ron thought he and other Utah Farm Bureau members could solve two problems
2: at once. Maybe we could raise some money buy the product from the farmers that they can't sell and turn around and give that food to people that have food insecurity in the state. So we started talking about that and tossing that idea around and in seven days we launched a program called Farmers Feeding Utah. In the first two weeks we raised two hundred thousand dollars. The average donation size of that two hundred thousand dollars was a hundred dollars. It was so amazing to see People give $5, people give $100. We had a 91-year-old man climbed up the second, the two stories of steps at the Farm Bureau office in Sandy and stood at the counter, and as he was shaking, wrote out the check for $500. Um, it was just precious, you know, to be able to see the love that people have for one another and, and that cause. The great thing about Farmers Feeding Utah is you're helping two things. I mean, it's not very often you can give money to a charity or something, and help two great causes. So here we're able to help agricultural producers, and then we're turning around and helping people that have food insecurity. It's really an awesome thing.
1: And this idea has attracted a lot of people from outside Utah too.
2: We've donated 10, 15 semi-loads of food over the last three months, four months. We we donated three semi-loads of sheep. Our friends at the Idaho Farm Bureau donated two semi-loads of potatoes to us. Our friends from the California Farm Bureau donate a semi-load of carrots. Um, We have ag producers all over the state that have been able to to sell us, that we've been able to buy from them. Beef for burger, lamb, goats, pork, uh, sweet corn, tomatoes, all sorts of produce that is grown here in the state and we've been able to give that to people that, are, that have food, food insecurity. The coolest part about that, in my opinion, is that unlike any donation that you're going to get from any food bank or anything like that, these people come to one of our events and they go away with fresh food. This is not canned food. This is the kind of stuff that I would eat for Sunday dinner with my family at home. And it is the coolest thing ever.
1: But how do you solve the problems the pandemic or any other challenge creates so we don't find ourselves in this situation again? Ron believes the first step is buying local. I
2: think the number one thing that we need to do is we have got to find ways as a state to support our local agricultural industry. We've got to have food produced here. We have got to have it manufactured and processed here so that we don't have these kind of things affect us. When we're relying for our food to come from all across the country, or even worse, to come from all over the world to feed us, that's a problem. And I think we witnessed that when we went into those grocery stores and the shelves were empty in March. We never want to do that again. And, you know, I make a lot of mistakes in my life. But, you know, I'm always going to be a better man if I can learn from that mistake and not do it again. And um, that's exactly what we need to do as a society here. We have been given a test blow here. And we recovered back, you know, right now we have plenty of food on the shelf. Things are good. We need to fix that right now. It's like the power going out for a minute and you go, where are we ready? Do we have our 72-hour kit? Well, that's what we have to do as a society. We have to say, no, wait a minute. Maybe we haven't been putting the kind of resources and the kind of thought processes towards our food supply that we need to. Maybe those farmers are really important to us. And maybe that local food supply is important. I know it is. And we've got to have manufacturing and processing facilities here in our state so that we can get that food delivered, that local food delivered to our people. The first industry that ever hit the state of Utah was agriculture. And um, the only way Utah succeeds is if the last industry that's in Utah is agriculture. If we let agriculture leave our state, we will be sad as a society. That is not sustainable. And uh, I think it's time that all of us together, local, state, Federal, all of us in in our government situations, as citizens, I think we all need to work together to make sure that we protect that local food supply.
1: And he thinks we can learn from the past and the experience of other countries.
2: I've heard stories for forever. I've got some friends that are Italian, and their farmers are treated a little different over there. And they've told us a hundred times, I've heard this guy say that a million times, that they were hungry once after the war, and they're never going to be again. We haven't been through a world war in the last few years, but what we have been through, we've learned and found weaknesses in our food supply, and we need to make sure that we protect that.
1: Coming up, the pandemic didn't just affect what we eat; it also took a toll on our health, and some people felt the effects more than others. KSL News Radio's John Wojcik with that part of the story next.
0: You're listening to Families, Farms, and Coronavirus: How Utah
5: Moves Forward Together on KSL News Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to this special hour of coverage on KSL News Radio for General Conference Weekend. I'm KSL News Radio reporter John Wojcik, and along with Kelly Pierce, we're bringing you Families, Farms, and Coronavirus: How Utah Moves Forward. In this segment, we'll be looking into how the coronavirus has impacted minorities in the state, and we'll be diving into some of those numbers. Now, obviously, the specific coronavirus case counts here in Utah can change drastically month over month, week to week, or even day to day. But for this specific conversation, minorities, especially the Hispanic community, has been disproportionately impacted by the virus since the state started tracking numbers. For background, the Hispanic community accounts for just over 14% of the total population in Utah. Meanwhile, those who are white make up about 78% of the population. Now, despite such a wide disparity by late May, the Hispanic community actually accounted for more total coronavirus cases than the white population. By the middle of June, they accounted for a 1,000 more total cases than the white population. At that time, the state started to seriously look into the various outbreaks that were causing these rising numbers in minority communities. One of the individuals tasked with doing that homework was Keegan McCaffrey, an epidemiologist at the Utah Department of Health. In an interview at that time, McCaffrey was asked to explain what exactly him and others were looking for when they started researching this information.
6: So what we did is... Um we at, at the Utah Department of Health and all, at all of our local health departments, we investigate all of the outbreaks that are reported to us, and we investigate every case to see if they're linked to other cases that might be an outbreak. So we took our first uh, 210 outbreaks, and we looked to see um, in in outbreaks that were in work sites, what types of work sites, what industries were those outbreaks in, and then Who was most uh, likely to be part of these worksite outbreaks? Who was getting infected um, at the worksite?
5: Naturally, it begs the question what specific jobs stand out as high risk and whether the large disparity between Hispanics and white COVID cases still holds true when condensed to just at the workplace.
6: What we found was um, first that we found um, outbreaks in the vast majority of Utah, Uh, industries. So we saw outbreaks um, in everything from uh, restaurants to manufacturing plants to research labs. So we saw outbreaks across the spectrum. But then we also uh, specifically saw that most of our outbreaks were in three main sectors. Those were manufacturing, wholesale trade, and construction. And together they accounted for more than half of our worksite outbreaks. And there's some commonalities between these. First, there are essential industries that keep our economy moving, um, that people weren't able to telework in, and that were our essential businesses that stayed open through uh, March, April, and May when we had a lot more, um, when Utah was in in red and in orange. And then we looked at, okay, so among these outbreaks, who's most likely to get infected? And we saw a huge disparity um, in uh, Hispanic or non-white workers. So we know that in the workforce, they, uh, people in, uh, that self-identify as Hispanic or non-white make up about 24% of workers. However, we found that uh, in these outbreaks, uh, they accounted for 73% of our outbreak cases. So. There's a huge, um, uh, Hispanic and non-white workers are much more likely to be part of a worksite outbreak and to get infected as part of these outbreaks.
5: Finally, it raises the question of just why Hispanics and other non-whites seem to be so much more at risk
6: for contracting the virus while at work. So um, we have a number of different ideas, and it's probably different from worksite to worksite. But what we do know is that um, Hispanic and non-white workers are more likely to be in the front lines of these industries. So we looked at the, the, the industry as a whole, and we know that um, the uh, people in these groups are more likely to be the frontline workers, not people working in the office who are more able to socially distance. Um, we also know that um, people in these groups uh, tend to have a harder time getting uh, paid time off, um, their leave. Now the numbers have
5: shifted into late September and here in early October with the white population accounting for roughly 9,000 more total coronavirus cases than the Hispanic community. Although they still make up about 33% of all cases in the state which is more than double the percentage of what they account for in terms of total population. Coming up in this next segment, we'll talk to a pair of Hispanic state officials about what challenges the state faced early on in reaching the Spanish-speaking community and the specific changes they've made to better bridge that communication and information gap. You're listening to Families, Farms, and Coronavirus, a General Conference Week special here on KSL News Radio. This is
0: Families, Farms, and Coronavirus. Utahns have come together to help neighbors and friends during the pandemic, but it hasn't always been easy. With more, here's Kelly Pierce and John Wojciech on KSL News Radio, 102.7 FM at 1160
5: AM. Welcome back, everybody, to this special hour of coverage on KSL News Radio for General Conference Weekend. I'm KSL News Radio reporter John Wojcik, and along with Kelly Pierce, we're bringing you families, farms, and coronavirus, how Utah moves forward. In this segment, we're taking a deeper look at the state's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and some of the challenges they faced in effectively handling outbreaks amongst minority communities. To set the stage, as we discussed last segment, the non-white population in Utah has been disproportionately hit hard by the virus, with the Hispanic population leading the way. In late May, their total number of cases surpassed whites, and the margin widened to over 1,000 by mid-June. That all comes despite the fact that they only make up just above 14% of the total state population. Right as this disturbing trend was starting, the state responded by creating a multicultural subcommittee as part of their overall COVID-19 task force. One of the members is Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, a former state representative. She explains that her and others on the committee had their work cut out for them from the get-go.
7: What I would say is we've been playing a lot of catch-up and trying to find ways to best communicate to our communities the urgency of keeping themselves safe. Uh, the mechanism by which they can access all of these different needs, whether it's housing, whether it's testing, whether it's health care, uh, whether it's digital access, you know, when we were dealing with uh, concerns about children that were not in school anymore. Uh, and how they were able to keep up with their education, Uh, the digital divide became very, very obvious to so many of us who knew that was there, that it really just uh, highlighted the concern with the fact that not every family, not every community has easy access to digital resources, and so of course then we were dealing with the students and families that needed to get additional resources and information, not being able to do so because they didn't have uh, a a decent internet or internet at all.
5: According to her, one of the first goals was just making sure that information about coronavirus and the various state and local restrictions was being put out and distributed in a number of different languages.
7: Um, because initially, a lot of the information early, early on was done was only being put out in English. Um, resources that were available maybe would not be presented in the literacy level that is best accommodating to a uh, majority of, of individuals that are limited English proficient, whether they're refugees or immigrants. Um, and so, those were some of the that probably was one of the biggest barriers that we were dealing with is that there was. Our community population that was getting information in a timely manner. Now, those obviously were people that were English proficient, and those who were not were not getting information. Um, So, those are some of the challenges that we were facing as the subcommittee convened and realized we needed to pivot and really focus on um, information sharing, making sure that the information is correct. accommodating and pivoting when the information changed, because that's the other thing that we've been dealing with is as we've moved from red to orange to yellow. Um, sometimes in a span of two weeks, it takes time to get that message out to limited English proficient communities.
5: As it turns out, the man for that job was Edwin Espinel, the Spanish public information officer for the Utah Department of Health. He and his team took it upon themselves to take all the state's coronavirus information and then translate it into as many languages that are spoken in Utah. At the
3: beginning of the pandemic, I was placed in charge of identifying uh, what languages we need and what we need to translate. With the Office of Health, of my, uh, health Disparities here at the Department of Health, we were able to identify 20, over 26 different languages in the state that were prominent. And, obviously, I only speak two more languages besides English, but uh, what do I do with somebody that speaks Swahili, Nepali, uh, Arabic, you name it? So, in collaboration with the Unified Command, we were able to access the linguistics team for the National Guard. And we're able to translate the most important information to all those languages. And through the collaboration with our community-based organization, which is a network of organizations that we've had for years on how to reach to these communities, we were able to actually disseminate information throughout the state. So translation has been incredible. The website when you look at the website, we were able to translate the most important pieces for the majority of the community. And uh, that's an ongoing project. In fact, uh, right now I am translating a bunch of documents that will come out pretty soon. And uh, usually we're step behind after the English version, but we're always translating those things. And if there is something more specific, We have a team where that uh, we're able to do that right away.
5: But he says just having the information in someone's native tongue isn't enough. They need to be able to get that information from a source they already trust and have a relationship with.
3: The community health worker is a trusted member of the community that actually provides not only education, but guidance as to where to identify resources that will benefit their community. A community health worker has been, for the longest time, a volunteer member that is a trusted member in the community. So if somebody in the community says, hey, so where can I find free testing? And uh, they say, go see Maria, and uh, just to say a name. And Maria said, you know something, this is the best place, they speak Spanish. They will not ask you. They will, there are people that you can trust. They can help you. So, community health workers have provided resources in education, in, in, the, in work sites, have provided information in uh, uh, health for the longest time. This is nothing new. This has happened for ages community health workers are in all cultures and uh, for hundreds of years and uh, so when we're looking at what we can do to help the community trust our messages was to employ them and uh, so the Office of Health Disparities created what we call a structural intervention that addresses all these issues that the community has through their trusted members. So the Office of Health Disparity began modestly with a a small amount of money and uh, funded 12 community-based organizations to hire community health workers or to use their community health workers to reach out to the community and provide information on testing resources they needed, and answer any questions they had. So what we did is train these community health workers in what is happening so they can properly do it in a culturally and linguistically appropriate way to reach out to these communities. And I'm not just talking Hispanics. I'm talking about Tongans, Arabic, Somalis. And you know Utah is a, a refugee state, so we're talking about all these different community groups. Over 20 languages. How do you do that unless you have a trusted member of the community? So this particular group started with 12 and created a contract that went all the way to August. Because of its effectiveness, they had extended now the project to December and not only have hired, have contracted more agencies, but they included all the local health departments, 13 of them. Right now, I believe they have about close to 30 different agencies between community organizations, local health departments, using community health workers to reach out to these communities. The data uh, that they have in collaboration with other groups, health systems, um, they are gathering information that is unique. Uh, in fact, that they have they have been so busy implementing it that they're barely just now getting to the fact that are looking at the data they're gathering. And it's quite fascinating.
5: He calls this strategy a great success so far. The most concerning demographic, Hispanics, has dropped from about 42 percent of all total cases in the state to now about 32 percent. Additionally, Pacific Islanders account for under 4% of all cases and American Indians are under 2%. But more work remains to be done, especially for some of the bigger, more institutional problems. For example, Espinel says, how do you tell an infected minority to quarantine at home in a secluded area if they live in close quarters with a multi-generational family? He says that's the case with so many individuals.
3: Other issues like transportation, uh, child care even ability to take time off work to go see a doctor. We can see the ability to take time off work and all these other cultural differences that may be affecting these communities having an issue with access to care. What is a given, not an issue for most people, when you have those issues that I mentioned, they become insurmountable. I cannot leave work, miss a day of work to go see the doctor because I won't get paid for that. And if I don't get paid for that, then there is a cascading effect. I won't be able to buy food for my family. I won't be able to pay rent. And if I'm not able to pay rent or provide food for my family, my children go hungry. They may not be able to perform well in a school. And uh and if I'm not able to pay rent, I may end up homeless.
5: He feels the coronavirus pandemic has put a spotlight on many of the issues of inequality in the state and hopes that it will lead to legislative changes in the short term. Families, farms, and coronavirus, how Utah moves forward will conclude with a final segment next here on KSL News Radio.
0: You're listening to Families, Farms, and Coronavirus How Utah Moves Forward Together on KSL News Radio.
1: The coronavirus pandemic could change our world in significant ways, though many see what we're going through as an opportunity to rethink things. Remember Ron Gibson, the farmer from Ogden we met earlier? He'd like to see food production expanded in
2: the United States. The number one thing that we need to do is we have got to find ways as a state to support our local agricultural industry. We've got to have food produced here. We have got to have it manufactured and processed here so that we don't have these kind of things affect us. When we're relying for our food to come from all across the country, or even worse, to come from all over the world to feed us, that's a problem.
1: And he's not the only Utahan thinking this way. Those with the power to change things also do. Senator Mike Lee believes overregulation is standing in the way of companies getting back on their feet. When
8: I first started following this problem, I was uh, a law student. And someone pointed out to me then that it was costing the American economy an estimated uh, three or $400 billion a year to comply with federal regulations. The estimates now are about $2 trillion a year. That is an enormous amount of money. That's uh, starting to approach the amount of money we spend through our income tax system. It's probably worse with COVID because there are more regulations in place now as a result of COVID. The costs of regulatory compliance are not borne exclusively by big corporate fat cats or billionaires. They are instead borne by poor middle-class Americans who pay... Through higher prices on goods, higher prices on services, diminished wages, unemployment, and underemployment. So it's a backdoor, invisible, highly regressive tax, one that disproportionately affects America's poor and middle class.
1: Like Ron, he wants to see changes in the food industry, but specifically to do away with regulations he believes are hurting.
8: We have seen during the COVID-19 pandemic. A problem with the fact that within the meatpacking industry, you've seen a lot of consolidation. You see an enormous amount of market force being wielded by just a few very small entities. And those entities have the power to control the price of beef in such a way that really produces some odd results. What does that have to do with regulation? Well, it has everything to do with regulation. There are very few people very few businesses that can afford to get into that industry. The restrictions on entry are very high because of the the excessive regulations. One has to wonder whether this isn't something that a state or a municipality or even in some circumstances a trade group could perform on its own.
1: How about solving problems in the healthcare industry? Senator Lee thinks loosening specific rules could help more folks too.
8: I've wondered at times who benefits from the incessant delays for regulatory approval of certain treatments. Uh, It's one of the reasons why I've supported legislation in the past that would identify treatments for certain conditions. If there is a treatment that's available in one of our peer nations, let's say in the UK uh, or in Japan or in Canada, that's been approved by one of their regulatory agencies, Americans ought to have the ability to procure that treatment without interference by our regulatory system. Uh, If it's good enough for use in the UK or or in Canada or in Japan, for example, people ought to have that decision to make on their own rather than having it made for them by a bureaucrat in Washington.
1: And it's not just D.C. Utah Speaker of the House Brad Wilson says over the past few months, the state made it easier for people to do things like take classes online or make hand sanitizer.
4: One thing that I believe firmly is that uh, the disruption that this pandemic has caused in society has the ability for us to see the world in a different way and we're doing things right now whether it's in our education areas or in business that I think we would have taken 10 or 15 years to get to the place we're at. And I suspect we're going to see a lot more of that in government and finding ways for government to be a lot more efficient.
1: One idea state lawmakers are exploring is called a regulatory sandbox. That's where certain companies are allowed to do business with or without certain rules for a short period of time
4: probably time we do something like that again. It's really sort of a beta test of uh, how you can maybe change regulation in in an industry and try to find out whether you get the outcomes you want or you get unintended outcomes. So I think that's a really interesting question, something we ought to explore.
1: And he thinks any new ideas are going to come from regular folks like you.
4: A lot of the changes that I've seen made in regulation over the last decade that I've served in the legislature have come from citizens who say see things that need to change. And um, it's not just regulation on business. Too. It's uh, government regulating
8: citizens in the way we live our lives.
1: The challenge will be finding the right mix of rules that also protects the public but Senator Lee is optimistic.
8: We're not living in the early 1900s. Uh, We're not living in the type of environment described by Upton Sinclair in the jungle. This is a very different world in which we now live, and I don't think we necessarily have to have a uniform system.
1: As is Speaker Wilson.
4: It's a little hard to judge in the middle of it, kind of where that's going to completely land, but There's never in a pandemic or outside of a pandemic a shortage of ideas of how to change the rules. I think that there's a lot of rules and regulation that we will find probably don't suit our needs in a post-pandemic world.
1: And Utah lawmakers may look to the recent past to shape our future. In
4: 2011, we did probably in the last five to 10 years the most thorough review of rules and regulations in the country. And uh, in that process, we found we were able to eliminate over 300 regulations And that loosens business and society and individuals up to go about their daily lives without the government intruding in ways that it doesn't need to.
1: Thanks for joining us. For more information on families, farms, and coronavirus, all the topics we covered here today, head to kslnewsradio.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.